I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn, PhD. I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. And today we are talking about the role of vitamins and minerals in immunity. If you find this presentation useful, follow me on Substack at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com. That is where you'll find all my written work replete with references to all of the science. And that is also where you'll find many videos of mine of topics that are too controversial to be discussed on YouTube related to nutritional science. Our first topic is vitamins A and D. These are the star nutrients of marine liver oils. Pliny the Elder in his Natural History in 73 AD had discussed the use of dolphin liver oil, baked dolphin's liver in an earthen vessel till a grease flows therefrom like oil in appearance to use as an ointment for lichens and leprosy. Leprosy is an infectious disease. Lichens is a skin disease that is considered to be autoimmune in nature. And so this is suggestive of the role of dolphin's liver or nutrients therein in the ability to regulate the immune system by cooling autoimmunity and simultaneously stimulating the defense against pathogens. Now, I don't know how much dolphin's liver shares with cod liver in terms of its nutrient value. It's hard to find anywhere near as much information on the contents of dolphin liver. But let's just suppose for the moment that these share a connection as we transition to talking about cod liver oil. So John Hughes Bennett had written a treatise on cod liver oil in 1841. Bennett had a number of qualifications that make him interesting in general. He introduced the systematic use of the microscope and study of histology into, which is the study of the appearance of tissues under a microscope to medical curricula. He was an early opponent of the indiscriminate use of drugs, bleeding, and mercury at a time when many questionable things were used out of convention. He was the one who proved that the conion used to execute Socrates was hemlock. And he was the first person to describe leukemia as a blood disorder. He wrote in his treatise on cod liver oil that the cod liver oil appears to have been used immemorially as a popular remedy for the cure of rheumatism in various countries in Sweden, Norway, Germany, Holland, Scotland. Rheumatism, of course, is a catch-all term that refers to problems with joints and connective tissue, and it probably includes a number of different things but it probably does include autoimmune arthritis in here. He also wrote about the connection between scrofula, which is tuberculosis of the lymph nodes in the neck. He wrote there was a common blood deficiency that was underlying scrofula and rickets in children and osteomalacia, gout, and rheumatism in adults. Osteomalacia is the adult version of rickets, and both of these are now clearly known to be vitamin D deficiency diseases, and cod liver oil is an effective remedy. Now, cod liver oil is known to contain vitamin D, and therefore, it shouldn't surprise us now to hear that cod liver oil could treat vitamin D deficiency diseases, but note that he's saying that there is something that is common that underlies the appearance of rickets in children and osteomalacia in adults that also connects to rheumatism, which is often autoimmune arthritis, and also connects 
to tuberculosis of the lymph nodes of the necks, which is an infectious disease. So here we have what in hindsight could be attributed to vitamin D, but in reality was attributed to cod liver oil, which contains both vitamins A and D together. We have in the 19th century, the early half, you know, the, the late 1841, so less than eight, earlier than 1850, we have Bennett describing how autoimmunity, infection, and vitamin D deficiency diseases are all connected because cod liver oil is able to prevent or treat them all. According to Bennett, many peasants would take a half a pint to one pint of cod liver oil per day and repeat this from four to eight days until they were cured. Medical men, he said, would give two to four tablespoons to adults and one to three teaspoons to children. Topical use, including drops in the eyes when appropriate, could augment internal use, according to the medical men of his era. We know from 1849 publications of the Hospital for Consumption and Disease of the Chest, Diseases of the Chest, uh, at the Royal Brompton Hospital in England, that cod liver oil was a successful treatment for tuberculosis. Now, of course, this doesn't rise to the standard of the randomized controlled trial that we would now hold as the gold standard for evidence of clinical efficacy. What is being used here is historical controls. So what they did was they looked at their success rate for treating tuberculosis before they started using cod liver oil, and then they looked at it and compared it to their success after they started using cod liver oil. And so if you look at the change in the outcome of tuberculosis over these periods of, of several years before and after, we had that the standard prior to the introduction of cod liver oil was for some 60%-ish of people to not get better or worse while they were in the hospital. But a third of them, shown on the left, deteriorated or died and only 5.6% of them, shown in the red on the right, completely resolved their condition. After the use of cod liver oil, shown in the green bars, the number who just improved while they were in the hospital but didn't fully get better stayed about the same. It went from 60.8% in red in the middle to 63.1% in green in the middle. Basically didn't go anywhere. However, the percent of people who deteriorated or died went down by 44%. It's a relative effect of 44% went down from a third to less than 20% of people deteriorating or died, dying. Meanwhile, the number of people who completely resolved more than tripled, as shown on the right, going from 5.6% before cod liver oil in the red to 18.1% after cod liver oil in the green. So although this is not randomized, it is strongly suggestive of an effect where you are taking almost half of the people who are deteriorating or dying, and you are converting them mostly into people who are completely resolving. Now, I mean, in reality, you're probably moving people from the deteriorating or dying camp 
into the no change camp and taking no, people in the no change camp and putting them into the complete resolution camp. But the point is that your numbers, your overall results are cutting in half the, pe- the people who are deteriorating or dying and more than tripling the people who are completely resolving. That makes cod liver oil look like a very good treatment for tuberculosis. So what's it doing? Well, around, in order to try to understand that, we can look at the, and, and even to, in order to understand the interest in cod liver oil that consumed the Western world in the first half of the 20th century because of its effect on immunity. We have to understand the the, the evolution of the understanding of the vitamins as they were discovered. So in the 1910s and 1920s was when vitamins A and D were discovered and when they became differentiated from each other. At first, if you go back to Bennett, he didn't know about the vitamins. But he was, you know, in all likelihood attributing vitamin A and vitamin D effects to this same underlying blood disorder. The same thing happened as vitamins A and D were discovered. It was discovered that cod liver oil could prevent uh, the diseases I'm about to to share with you on the screen, xerophthalmia and, and rickets. And it was thought that there was a common vitamin responsible for them both. And then through various experiments, it was shown that you could differentiate them and that actually xerophthalmia is a vitamin A deficiency disease and rickets is a vitamin D deficiency disease. In any case, what you see on the left is a corneal ulceration due to xerophthalmia, which is prevented and cured by vitamin A. You can't cure the you can have permanent tissue damage and permanent blindness that results from xerophthalmia if it gets very severe that cannot be tre- treated and cured with vitamin A. But xerophthalmia is from the Greek meaning dry eyes. And it refers to the state of the mucus being dried up in the eyes so you no longer have lubrication and you no longer have the protective effects of the, of the mucus against debris and against pathogens. And you wind up with debris slicing up the cornea and then in and then pathogens infecting the uh the slices that are made in the cornea and then you wind up with permanent damage from cutting up the eye and not allowing it to heal quickly enough and from infection that causes even more damage and so you can wind up with ulceration and permanent blindness but the dryness of the eyes is reversible by just putting vitamin A back into the body. And if you catch it early enough when the eyes are dry before they're ulcerated and you get to permanent blindness, it is completely reversible. On the right, you see bowed and poorly mineralized legs due to rickets, and that is prevented and cured by vitamin D. I mean, similarly, if you have bowed legs that persist long enough um, through childhood into adulthood, you're, you're probably going to have permanent developmental defects. But if you catch this while it's in the process of happening, this is reversible with vitamin D. Early experiments also were done, uh, especially by Sir Edward Mellonby, credited with discovering vitamin D, to show the importance of vitamin A specifically in preventing infection. Now, notice if we were reading Bennett's treatise on cod liver oil back in 1841, we would primarily be interested in vitamin D because we would be seeing 
rickets and osteomalacia, which are tied to vitamin D deficiency, tied to this protective effect against autoimmunity in the form of rheumatism and the protective effect against infections in the form of tuberculosis from Bennett's work. And we would say vitamin D is the anti-infectious vitamin. Of course, he was using cod liver oil, which has them both. So Mellenby then did experiments to say, well, which is the truly anti-infectious part of cod liver oil? Is it the vitamin A or is it the vitamin D? Is it the component that prevents rickets or is it the component that prevents xerophthalmia? And his experiments suggested that vitamin A was the anti-infected nutrient. Although as we'll see going along, vitamins A and D are actually synergistic partners. But here's why Mellenby thought that vitamin A was the, infe- was the anti-infectious vitamin specifically. So he fed dogs olive oil shown on the top and they developed soft bones, partially collapsed lungs, and bronchial pneumonia. Or, and this is in the background of a, of a generally fat-soluble vitamin-deficient diet. Or he gave them butter, which contained vitamin A and not vitamin D, and they developed soft bones, partially collapsed lungs, but they did not develop bronchial pneumonia. So something in the butter is protecting against bronchial pneumonia, but not protecting the bones. Cod liver oil, which has both A and D, led to well-mineralized bones, fully functioning lungs, and no infections. Now, as it stands to be the case, butter at that time was, they were using confinement with dairy cows at that time. And, And of course, in temperate zones, you had periods of the year where sunshine was unavailable anyway. As it turns out, butter can be a good source, not an excellent source, but a good source of vitamin D if the cows are raised in the sunshine. But this butter, the cows were not raised in the sunshine and it was only rich in vitamin A. It did not have vitamin D in it. And that's why we got these results. So this was one of the first experiments that actually, not the first experiment, but it was one of the first experiments where they were showing clear differences in the impact of butter and cod liver oil and using this to show that you could differentiate vitamin A from vitamin D. And this makes it look like vitamin A is the anti-infectious vitamin. Mellenby did another experiment as the ability to synthesize vitamin D arose where he could, and of course it's vitamin D2. We now know that vitamin D3 is the ideal form of vitamin D, but that's not the point. And that's not what's responsible for this effect when we synthesize it with the rest of the, of the known science. Uh, but the ability to synthesize vitamin D was very important because it allowed melon B, instead of comparing A and D together in cod liver oil to just A and butter, to compare just A and butter to just D that was synthesized. And so he fed rats a vitamin deficient diet that was based on heated, (coughs) excuse me, it's not COVID, (laughs) based on um, heated casein, rice, starch, sugar, olive oil, lemon juice, and mineral salts. And this led the rats to develop widespread infection of the tongue, the throat, the eyes, the lungs, and the GI tract, right? Infection all over the place. Now notice, melon B is not giving them a pathogen, all right? Melon B is not saying, 
I'm going to give this vitamin D, a vitamin deficient diet, and I'm going to expose the rats to tuberculosis. I'm going to expose the rats to streptococcus pneumonia. I am going to expose the rats to a coronavirus. He's not doing that. He's just giving a vitamin deficient diet and boom, infection of the tongue, the throat, the eyes, the lungs, and the GI tract. Now, I want you to notice something. What is the commonality of the tongue, the throat, the eyes, the lungs, and the GI tract? It is that they are all outside the body. Notice he didn't show that it caused sepsis. He showed that it causes infection of the tongue, the throat, the eyes, the lungs, the GI tract. Okay, If you think of your mucosal surfaces from your mouth to your anus, on top of your eyes, in the lining of the nose and the whole respiratory tract, the lungs, these surfaces control the exchange of things outside the body with things inside the body, right? Your lungs are very engaged in exchanging gases from outside the body to inside the body and vice versa, taking oxygen in, releasing carbon dioxide out. Your eyes are, you know, the surfaces of your eyes, remember the problem is ophthalmia, the surfaces of your eyes are there to prevent stuff from outside getting any further inside. Same thing with your nose. That's why your nose runs when you have a cold or you have allergies. It's trying to flush things out of the surface so that they do not enter therein, right? So he's showing infections seemingly everywhere, but actually Seemingly everywhere, but actually infections of the mucosal membranes. Now, when he fed the vitamin D deficient diet and added vitamin D, synthetic vitamin D2 to it, it actually hastened the onset of infection. When he added vitamin A to it, down at the bottom, there were no infections. When he added vitamin D2 and vitamin A together, there were no infections. So this makes it look like vitamin A is the anti-infective nutrient, and vitamin D actually antagonizes the effect of vitamin A in a state of deficiency. But when the two are provided together, they are balanced enough that vitamin D does not detract from the ability of vitamin A to prevent infection. So vitamin D will make your infections worse if you're vitamin A deficient, but as long as you have vitamin A, you don't get infections. These infections are spontaneous infections. They do not require the community spread of disease. They just happen. And they only happen when you're deficient in vitamin A and they are infecting everything that is outside the body, everything inside the mouth, the surfaces of the eyes, the lungs, and the gastrointestinal tract. Again, the mucosal membranes, the surfaces of the outside of the body. So what's going on here? Well, let's review a little bit about what we know about vitamins A and D from the modern era with the advances of molecular biology. So first of all, Simple biology review. Genes are segments of DNA that code for proteins to express a gene, which means to make a protein using the information in that gene, to make the protein that the gene codes for. 
This happens in two processes. The first is transcription, shown on the left. The next is translation, shown on the right. Transcription is something that happens in the nucleus and, and makes an RNA transcript from the information in DNA. And that RNA transcript is then translated meaning into protein, meaning a protein is made using the information in the RNA transcript by ribosomes that are studying the endoplasmic reticulum, which has a membrane that is continuous with the nuclear membrane, the membrane of the nucleus. And the translation of that protein generally is going to put the protein into the inside or the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. Various modifications may be made, and then the protein can be further processed or secreted. And there are variations on this theme. This is not, it doesn't always happen exactly like this, but this is generally how it's happening. And for our purposes, it's sufficient. Vitamin A is activated to retinoic acid, shown in the slide here as RA for retinoic acid, which regulates the transcription of vitamin A responsive genes. So it's acting on the first part of that machinery I just showed you on the transcription part, which is the synthesis of an RNA transcript to contain the information and bring it to the ribosome that contains the information from the gene coded in the DNA. And the way it does this is retinoic acid binds to the retinoic acid receptor, which binds to the DNA. And there are many sophisticated things that happen to make one process go to the other. But in this simplified version, when retinoic acid binds to the retinoic acid receptor and that binds to DNA, you get transcription of vitamin A responsive genes. <laughs> vitamin D does some... <laughs> vitamin D some, does something very similar. It binds to the vitamin D receptor, which binds to DNA, which generates transcription of vitamin D responsive genes. Now, there's something that I didn't show you in the last two slides. I'm going to add a layer of complication to this. When retinoic acid binds to the retinoic acid receptor, it has to be bound to the retinoid X receptor in what's called a heterodimer, which means a two things binding together that are different. And the RXR, retinoid X receptor, needs to bind to 9-cis-retinoic acid, which is a variant of the activated form of vitamin A. And so what you see here is that one form of activated vitamin A is partnering with another form of, vit uh, of activated vitamin A. And in the case of vitamin A, that's not so interesting, but it becomes very interesting in the case of vitamin D because when vitamin D binds to the vitamin D receptor, it also must partner up with the retinoid X receptor, which also must be bound to 9-cis-retinoic acid, which means that in order for vitamin D to do anything to regulate gene expression, it has to partner with vitamin A. It is always a partner with vitamin A during vitamin D responsive transcription. And how do we put this into simple terms? So vitamins A and D are the raw materials that are used to communicate. Cellular communication drives cellular identity. In technical terms, that's differentiation. Why does one cell type become a different cell type? Or why is a certain cell type identifying as that cell type? Cell cellular identity in, in simple terms, in technical terms, differentiation. And cellular activity, what's the cell doing? Is it proliferating or not? Meaning, is it multiplying or not? Is it producing one thing or another thing? 
Vitamins A and D themselves are not signals, and therefore they should not be seen as drugs. Even their activated forms are not signals. They are the infrastructure of communication like pen and paper or like internet connectivity and server space. So for example, imagine that you are managing a team of people and either it's back in the day where you send out messages on pen and with pen and paper and send people memos and people carry them around the office or whatever um or you have or you're you know you're working remotely with people and you're sending a letter or whatever today it might be more that everyone's remote and distributed and they're get and things are getting by with but with emails if you are missing the infrastructure of your communication like internet connectivity or server space you are going to have malfunctions. Things are going to go wrong. It's not because you have the wrong signals. It's because you don't have the infrastructure. You need to communicate any signals at all. If you restore the pen and paper, you restore the internet connectivity in the server space, you will be able to send emails. But that doesn't make any particular message get carried out. It just allows you to communicate the way that you need to. And so it will restore proper communication. Having the ability to send emails is not going to make your emails tell your team to produce things on Tuesday instead of Friday. It's just going to allow you to tell your team when to produce the, you know, when the deadline is, what to produce when, et cetera, right? So vitamins A and D are not signals. They are the, the even their activated forms are not signals. They are the infrastructure that the cells use to communicate. And so in one cell type, they might promote one thing and they might do something totally different in a different cell type because they're just being used for communication. All right, so what happens in vitamin A deficiency that explains melon B's results where infections of the mucosal membranes were widespread in vitamin A deficiency and that if the vitamin A was deficient, the vitamin D hastened the onset of the infection? Well, what happens in vitamin A deficiency is a complete breakdown in the cellular identity of all epithelial tissues. Epithelial tissues are tissues that line the external and internal surfaces of organs. And these are found in all our mucous membranes. They're also found wrapping all, you know, wrapping the liver, wrapping everything inside the body as well. And what happens is that Everywhere where you would have something such as pseudostratified columnar tissue, where, and you get this in the mucous membranes, where you have goblet cells that produce mucus and you have cilia that, that move along pathogens caught up in mucus. And you have these tissues involved in the collection, destruction, or remo removal of pathogens. You know, if you cough up mucus, you have goblet cells that are making the mucus and you have cilia that are brushing the mucus up in, during the cough. And that is how you cough up mucus. That's how you expel debris that does not belong and pathogens from your respiratory tract. Something very similar is happening in your eyes when your eyes tear up or when you get the little eye snots that come out the, the corners of your eyes and you can wipe it away. Or which, you know, greatly accelerates when you get pink eye and have your eyes shut down because of all the mucus that dries up on the outside of the eyes. This is the pathogen removal process carried out by goblet cells and cilia. Well, what happens is that in vitamin A deficiency, 
all epithelial tissues turn into keratinized stratified squamous tissue, dead keratinized cells at the surface, which is what is typically the very, 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 very top layer of your skin. But this is what happens everywhere. So one thing you'll notice in the skin is you get hyperkeratosis. You have more keratin than you should, and you have little bumps or you have things that peel off in crusty ways. You're only seeing it happen in your skin, but it's happening everywhere, especially if vitamin A deficiency gets bad enough. It's happening not just in all the mucous membranes, but it's also happening in the epithelial tissues that line all the surfaces of the internal organs. We know this because we can feed rats profoundly vitamin A deficient diets, cut them open, and see the keratinized tissue has replaced everything. And so what you have to realize, you know, if we're looking at vitamin A deficiency, we see xerophthalmia. What's, ha what's happening in this very, very well-characterized situation is you're lacking the mucus and you are instead getting, as a, or as a result, dry eyes that are, are vulnerable to debris and infections coming in. You have to realize that this, we're not even talking about the mucosal immune system yet. What we're talking about is that the basic epithelial tissues on the surfaces of your mucosa are constituting the, the, the first barrier to a pathogen is the physical barrier that they present. The physical barrier. Now, behind that, you also have a mucosal immune system that is localized and separate from your systemic immune system in those mucous uh, membranous tissues that also play a role in cellular and adapt adaptive immunity, where you have many defenses that we'll talk about in, in upcoming slides. But the physical barrier of the epithelial tissues on the linings of the surfaces of the outside of your body is the first defense against pathogens. And if we look at Mellonby's experiments, what's happening? Well, the, the cells that line the mucosal surfaces are no longer the cells that are supposed to be there. They've become keratin-producing cells, producing a dead layer of keratinized tissue instead of a living physical barrier with mucus production and cilia that catch up debris and pathogens and brush it off. And why is vitamin D hastening the infection? Well, that goes back most likely to this, which is that every time vitamin D engages in gene transcription, it is using up some vitamin A in the process. Excuse me, this slide. Every time vitamin D engages in gene expression, it is using up some vitamin A in the process. All right, so now, they, now in the 1920s, they believe that vitamin A is the anti-infective nutrient. but Thankfully, they don't have synthetic vitamin A to use, so they're using cod liver oil. And remember, the pendulum now is swinging in favor of vitamin A, but the pendulum was siding with vitamin D back in, the, back in 1841 when Bennett was tying the protective effect of cod liver oil against infection, autoimmune disease, 
and rickets and osteomalacia, where it all looked like vitamin D was the active component, or at least it would have looked like that to us now that we know about vitamin D's role in osteomalacia and rickets. Now it's looking like vitamin A is the anti-infective nutrient, but in both Bennett's time and Mellonby's time, the vehicle for these nutrients is cod liver oil. It is not the synthetic vitamins. So cod liver oil was shown to decrease the incidence of colds in clinical trials published in the 1930s. Cod liver oil cut in half the time missed from work. And so it was the darling of American industry because it improved productivity. Cod liver oil reduced the rate of measles mortality over half in people who had measles. If we blow this graph up, you can really see that difference. This was published in the British Medical Journal in 1932. Cod liver oil was widely promoted as a means of protecting against the morbidity caused by the classic infectious diseases. So look at these advertisements for cod liver oil. They say whooping cough, measles, mumps, chicken pox, scarlet fever may do greater harm than mothers think. And then I have to get close to, to read this, but children have lighter cases. They recover quicker and they're less likely to be left with some permanent injury if they build up good general resistance in advance to fight them. So cod liver oil is being heavily advertised in America as a protection against the classic infectious diseases. And if you look at cod liver oil imports during that time, you can see from 19, uh, mid-1920s to the start of World War II, you have a massive 25-fold increase in American cod liver oil imports. Then the war causes that to go basically down to zero. But then after the war, there is a dead cat bounce, to borrow a term from trading, where it goes up part of the way and then it sinks off. What happens after World War II is that because of the rise of antibiotics, everyone forgets about the role of cod liver oil in protecting against infectious diseases. You know, as it turns out, however, no one had identified vitamin A and vitamin D resistant pathogens during this decade's use of cod liver oil. Actually, cod liver oil being used for tuberculosis goes back even to the 1800s, and no one was documenting vitamin A and vitamin D or cod liver oil resistant pathogens. But antibiotic resistance started developing and being documented in the year after the antibiotics were released after the discovery of penicillin. Uh, in fact, Time Magazine was publishing the arms race between antibiotics and pathogens. I believe in, I forget the year, but it was, it was right around uh, either during World War II or right after it. All right, so if we look at the fall of tuberculosis mortality, this is from Thomas McKeown's The Rise of Modern Population. It was a 1976 book. Thomas McKeown was uh, unambiguously pro-vaccine, and yet he showed that for every single infectious disease, the pattern looks like this. Of course, this is from the UK where there was a vaccine introduced for tuberculosis, there was no such vaccine ever introduced in America. People often confuse the test for tuberculosis with a vaccine for tuberculosis. There is never 
a, a tuberculosis vaccine introduced in the United States and, and tuberculosis was still wiped off the map. So it's obviously unrelated to the vaccine, but Nikion actually praises the tuberculosis vaccine in the discussion of this graph for having a hand in finishing off tuberculosis. So he by no means whatsoever was against vaccines. And yet he shows that for every single classic infectious disease, the pattern was that the mortality practically disappeared before the vaccine was introduced. Of course, it's, it's also true that for many of these diseases, the incidence remained high, just not the mortality and the vaccine wiped out the incidence. In any case, the point here is not about vaccines, it's about cod liver oil. So if we look at the decline of tuberculosis mortality, we can't prove cause and effect when looking uh, you know, at a, a time series of events that happens with no control. But the use of cod liver oil as a treatment started in the mid-1800s, which, and unfortunately, we don't have prior to 1838. So we don't have a good establishment of what the trend was before that. It may have been in decline the whole time, as for all we can tell from this graph. But cod liver oil was being used at, right at the beginning of this graph where the descent of tuberculosis is clearly in motion, of tuberculosis mortality. And then we had the identification of the fat-soluble vitamins that happened in the early 20th century that is expanding the use of cod liver oil in, in the West. And then we have massively increased use of cod liver oil in the West as vitamin A is seen as the anti-infective nutrient. And so we have expansion of the use of cod liver oil from tuberculosis patients to a prophylactic to an exceedingly common ubiquitous prophylactic over the course of this very long secular downward trend in tuberculosis mortality. Did cod liver oil contribute to it? I'm going to guess it did just simply based on all the clinical trials showing that the cod liver oil reduced mortality and incidence of infectious diseases and improved the, the treatment of tuberculosis. It seems that it had to have made some contribution to this downward trend. If we look at measles mortality, we see the same thing. We see the immunization began after measles mortality was pretty much completely wiped off the map. And the identification of the fat-soluble vitamins occurs right at the beginning of that trend. Here we have much better data showing that the trend had been stable measles mortality until the fat-soluble vitamins were identified. And if you go back and you look at what people were eating at this time, the people who were discovering the vitamins were coming out and preaching to the Western world that you cannot just live on white bread alone. You know, people had no idea in 1900 that white bread with, you know, oil and lard or, and later Crisco and salt on top of it was not a nutritionally adequate meal. When the fats and vitamins were identified, this was really important just for the people who discovered them preaching that people must eat eggs, they must eat vegetables, they must have things beyond white bread. And remember, this is when Weston Price was saying that he couldn't study he couldn't study cause and effect of tooth decay in America because everyone had tooth decay. Right? This was the worst time for diet was was when they found the ability to refine flour, but they did not yet know about the vitamins. Now, when vitamin A was identified as an anti-infective, that's over 
the steepest part of this decline. And we this was for UK. For the US, this graph is showing something very similar. It, here, this, this graph is showing smoothed out data over the course like of the decade average, whereas this is showing year by year. And so it looks much noisier because measles comes in in uh, epidemics and so it goes up and down uh, with you know various outbreaks and the resolution of the outbreak. But still, if you imagine a smoothed over line, you, you, you're gonna you just imagine a line being cut through the middle of the peaks and troughs. It's gonna come straight across flat down here. And then around this time, it's gonna start descending and it's gonna go in this straight line down and then it's gonna kind of bottom out and curve around like this, right? And so it looks, you know, it looks very similar to this. And what we see if we just transpose the same things, the identification of the fat-soluble vitamins is occurring right before we have the descent. Then vitamin A is an anti-infective, massive 25-fold increase in cod liver oil imports is happening uh, during the steep decline of measles mortality. Uh, same trend as before. So I think it's, you know, especially when we go back to the clinical trials that showed that cod liver oil concentrate reduces measles mortality by over half. I mean, you have to say that whatever else happened, um, you know, that wiped out the mortality for measles before the vaccine was introduced, certainly cod liver oil played some role in that. Okay, now there was a problem, which was that cod liver oil is rich in vitamin A and D and it was highly successful, but this idea that vitamin A is the anti-infective component led people to say, hey, why not use halibut oil? We have halibut liver oil that has vitamin A. It doesn't have any vitamin D, but who cares? Because vitamin D hastens the onset of infection and it's not the anti-infective nutrient vitamin A is. And the, so the problem was that the halibut trials failed. So IG Spiesman comes out with this clinical trial comparing vitamin A or D alone to the two of them combined. and you know, a modern person who's adept at making randomized controlled trials would look back and say, like, well, the way he allocated people, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, it's not up to the standard of a modern randomized controlled trial, but it is a, for the, for the era, it's a very well controlled trial. And so what he does is he takes 54 people who are chronic or frequent cold suffer, sufferers aged 7 to 49 and gives them 9,000 to 40,000 IU of vitamin A per day, 120,000 to 300,000 IU of vitamin D per day, or the two of them together between September and June. Um, so not year long, between September and June for three years. And this is rightly called massive doses of vitamins A and D in the prevention of the common cold. What you see is the blue is people who had no effect. The red is people who had a reduction in the incidence or severity. The green is people who became cold free. You can see on the left that vitamin A did nothing alone, that in the middle that vitamin D did nothing alone. And on the right, that Vitamins A and D together caused a massive increase in the amount of people, well, an infinite increase in the amount of people who improved because they were zero when the vitamins were alone. But it shifted the vast majority of people into the, <coughs> into the camp of either having improvement or having complete resolution of their frequent colds. Most people just said improvement, um, but you know, a, a small percentage, around 15%, became cold-free. And so if you add those together, you have 80% are improving in some way. Of that 80%, 15% are 
are becoming completely cold free. Only 20% of people is this not working for. This also showed that vitamin A had some toxicity, vitamin D had a little bit less toxicity, and vitamins A and D together did not produce any toxicity. So when you combine the two together, they're much more effective against infection, but they're also not toxic. When you have either one alone, they are not effective at all against infection. And, you know, at least in this context of this study, and they, you know, in many people, they do prove to have some toxic toxicity. So one of the important ways that we can look at their synergy in the context of the cold is, remember, through their effects on gene transcription, they are involved in differentiation, which we can think about as cellular identity. Why is a cell one type of, of identity, you know, one type of cell versus another cell type? So one thing that happens during an infection is that you have what's called emergency myelopoiesis, where in the bone marrow, myeloid stem cells are becoming first immature myeloid cells and then later mature myeloid cells. So the mature myeloid cells, we are much more familiar with. This includes neutrophils in the upper right who are responsible for rapid emergency response. And it includes monocytes and macrophages in the lower right or mid-right which are involved in slow and steady surveillance and removal of things that do not belong. On the path to becoming neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages, you have the production of what are called myeloid-derived suppressor cells, or MDSCs. And myeloid-derived suppressor cells have a negative effect on the adaptive immune system. They suppress helper T cells. They suppress killer T cells. And because they suppress helper T cells, they also suppress B cells. So killer T cells are antigen-specific killer cells. They look for cells that are expressing, expressing a specific antigen, and an antigen is usually a pr protein or a part of a protein. It's just some signal by which it recognizes the pathogen or the thing that doesn't belong. It's not always a pathogen. The immune system does not centrally specialize in defending against pathogens. It centrally specializes in cleaning up, remodeling, and, uh, and healing tissues. And you know, pathogens are one thing that doesn't belong. And so the immune system will, as one of the major things it does, defend against pathogens because pathogens are a subset of things that don't belong in the body. Now, one of the ways you identify a pathogen is by a specific signal, such as an antigen. Other, there are other things that are more generic symbols of this looks like a bad guy or this looks like something's causing damage, where natural killer cells, part of the innate immune system, which we're not discussing here, will just recognize general uh, signals that, that something belongs to the broad class of things that don't belong and will kill cells. Killer T cells are antigen-specific, because they're antigen specific, that makes them part. Because they're antigen specific, that makes them part of the adaptive immune system. Innate is not antigen specific. Adaptive immune system is antigen specific. Uh, on this slide, neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages are innate cells. T cells and B cells are adaptive cells. So, killer T cells are adaptogen. Excuse me, antigen specific cells that will kill cells expressing the antigen. Helper T cell uh, B cells make antibodies to a specific antigen. Antibodies will bind to it. Some types of antibodies like IgA are non-inflammatory. Other types of antibodies like IgG, IgD, IgE 
will bind to the antigen and then elicit responses from other parts of the immune system. And depending on which class of antibodies they are, determines which parts of the rest of the immune system get involved. So we're not going into all of that, but the point here is that helper T cells are needed to stimulate both killer T cells and B cells, right? So helper T cells are important to the entirety of the adaptive immune, immune response, including activating killer T cells that will destroy cells expressing an antigen and will also are also critical to stimulating B cells, which make the antibodies. In addition to this not shown here, we're not going into them, there are regulatory T cells, which basically do the opposite of helper T cells. They suppress killer T cells or B cells. Now, what's important here is that vitamins A and D are needed to make MDSCs finish differentiating into neutrophils or monocytes and macrophages. So myeloid-derived suppressor cells are not abnormal. They're supposed to occur in certain contexts. But if you don't have enough vitamins A and D to make them fully differentiate into neutrophils, monocytes, and macrophages, you will have MDSCs that stay elevated for too long and continue to suppress the adaptive immune response when you should be having a robust adaptive immune response. So in this slide, I have put together my hypothesis about why MDSCs usually rise in the first day of infection and then start to fade away. This is not to scale. This is just general, just generally commuting, communicating the concept that at the beginning of an infection, you have the innate immune system that is primarily responsible. And over the course of the infection, as the adaptive immune response learns to develop a precision attack against highly specific antigens, it will start to take over and become much more important than the innate immune system. Please don't read too much into the scale here. I'm not saying at you know this exact point, this is 50% of the original. My point is simply that the innate response starts high and becomes low. The adaptive response starts low and becomes high. And at some point, you have a transition to where the innate, to where the primary responsibility for cleaning the clearing away the infection it go, moves, shifts from the innate immune system to the adaptive immune system. Now, MDSCs tend to rise at the very beginning of an infection and then rapidly fall. And so I believe what they are doing is at the beginning of the infection, you want them high because they are helping suppress the adaptive immune system and shift the burden completely onto the shoulders of the innate immune system. The reason you want that is because if the adaptive immune system kicks into gear too fast, it will kick into gear before it has taken the time to learn about learn about the antigen and develop a highly specific response. If it develops a less specific response, you will have a higher chance of autoimmunity. So I believe these MDSCs are, are occurring at the very beginning of infection to prevent a nonspecific response of the adaptive immune system that will start targeting antigens of your own body because it's, it has not learned sufficient specificity to make a precision attack like it's supposed to. Once it learns enough specificity, the MDSCs falls, the MDSCs fall, and that's what allows the adaptive immune response to take over now that it has precision. The reason you want that to happen is because if you rely too much on the innate immune system, you have a carpet bombing approach where you're just 
launching reactive oxygen species all over the place. And you're not being antigen specific. You need that at first because you don't have a better way to do it. But after the adaptive immune system learns some antigen specificity, you want its precision special ops because now you have less collateral damage because you can have, you know, the Navy SEALs or whatever go in. Here you have special ops deployment where you are highly specific. You get rid of the carpet bombing. You get what you need out and you don't cause excessive damage from too much carpet bombing. And you also don't cause autoimmunity by not being specific enough with the antigens being targeted by the special ops. So if we look at what happens in COVID, now in this slide, I was giving you just not to scale general concepts. This is actually taken from measurements of COVID patients. And so you have mild COVID patients in green, you have moderate COVID patients in orange, you have severe COVID patients in red, and you have COVID patients who died in the dotted gray. And these are the percent of cells in the blood, percent of immune cells that are MDSCs. And so what you see is that in green, in a mild infection, they start low and within the first day, they're already in their decline. By contrast, in moderate COVID-19 patients, you are still rising up to around day 16, you hit your peak. And then even by day 20, you are still as high, if not higher, than the mild patients were on day one. But by day 20, you're still that high, even though on day one, the mild patients were already in decline and the MDSC has already started falling. And then they slowly fall, but they don't really fall back to the point where they reach where the mild people are until around day 30 over here is where these lines intersect. Severe COVID patients start way higher than moderate or mild at the beginning. And then they keep increasing to a very late peak that is, you know, in the 20s, close to day 30. Now, the, 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 the patients who die have the highest peak of MDSCs. The only reason they peak earlier than the severe cases is because they died and the people who died are, are being pulled out of the time course. So, you know, the way you can summarize this is that in a healthy response to COVID, you have MDSCs start low and, and decline early. In a severe or fatal case, you have MDSCs start high and continue rising throughout the illness constantly suppressing the adaptive immune response. And now I believe if you look at one of the hypotheses of long COVID, it's persistent antigen. Another hypothesis is immune dysfunction. Well, you have persistent antigen because you have immune dysfunction. If you look at uh, the study of IBD patients who are seven months out from COVID, the ones with long COVID symptoms are uh, exclusively patients that still have persistent antigen in the gut. And what best correlates with persistent antigen is low antibody responses and low T-cell responses to the antigen. So why is the antigen persisting? It's because you have immune dysfunction that's not clearing the antigen. That's also why people die of COVID, because they have immune dysfunction that consists of 
elevated MDSCs that stay elevated for too long that reach too high levels that are suppressing the adaptive immune, immune response, suppressing T cells, suppressing antibodies. And so you're not clearing the antigen. You have more damage from the antigen. Now, I believe that this is probably a general model of why infections become severe rather than specific to COVID, but COVID is where it's been investigated the most. So if we look at vitamins A and D in COVID, we see that they are depleted over the course of the infection. The data on this is clearer for vitamin D than it is for vitamin A, but it's supportive for vitamin A. People are generally going into COVID with less of these vitamins and the vitamin levels themselves are rapidly dropping off during the beginning of the infection. So in a subset of patients hospitalized in Italy who had who had a record of pre-COVID vitamin D status, mean 25-OHD dropped 42% from 21 nanograms per milliliter to 12 nanograms per milliliter by the time they were admitted to the hospital. Among a series of Spanish ICU patients, the proportion of patients with 25-OHD greater than 20 nanograms per milliliter dropped fivefold from 17.6% to 3.2% just after three days of being in the ICU. So vitamin D levels are starting low and dropping off a cliff in severe COVID. Serum vitamin A below the reference range increases the risk of ICU admission by 5.5-fold and the risk of death by 5.2-fold. Compared to healthy people, those with severe COVID have 29% lower vitamin A levels. So, you know, the, the data showing a decrease during the disease process is clearer for vitamin D, but you can infer that it's happening with vitamin A as well. And the overwhelmingly likely interpretation here is that Severe cases of COVID, they start off with low levels of vitamins A and D, and that vitamins A and D just rapidly disappears during the, you know, on a day-by-day -day basis during the infection. So if we go back here, you know, why, then what explains this? Well, just the vitamins A, a and D alone, you can explain why you have MDSCs, if you don't have vitamins A and D, you can't differentiate the MDSCs down to neutrophils, macrocytes, macrocytes, and macrophages, right? So what happens when you start low in vitamins A and D and you rapidly deplete as the illness goes on on a day-by-day -day basis, what happens is this. You start with your MDSCs high instead of low, and instead of rapidly declining the MDSCs, you have persistent MDS MDSCs going up. And that explains why you don't clear the antigen, you don't clear the virus, and you get a severe or fatal case. Now, what about autoimmune diseases? So MDSCs play an important role in restraining autoimmunity. In fact, I proposed to you in the preceding slide, oops, I proposed to you in this slide that the whole purpose of MDSCs rising the first day or two of an infection is to prevent autoimmunity. But if you look at people with an established autoimmune disease, you also see that their MDSCs are high. And the experimental evidence suggests that these MDSCs are restraining the autoimmunity. So they, you know, I, I think the, the aberrant response, so let me clarify something. I think that if you don't have this, this early rise and then fall in MDSCs, you get autoimmunity. You get autoimmunity if you didn't have them start up here, 
And you also get autoimmunity if they, if they stayed high. And the reason is, as I said before, if you don't have MDSCs at the beginning, you, I, I believe you will get an adaptive immune response that is targeting self-antigens because it's not specific enough. But if you have them remain high as occurs in severe and fatal COVID, then you fail to clear the virus. If you fail to clear the virus, you have more carpet bombing from the innate immune system. You have more spike protein toxicity. And so you have more damage from both those sources. How does the adaptive immune response decide to kill an antigen with antibodies or killer T cells killing the cells? It decides that based on pathogen-associated molecular patterns or PAMPs and damage-associated molecular patterns or DAMPs. If you have a lot of damage, you have a lot of DAMPs. And if you have a lot of tissue damage, the adaptive immune system is looking for a cause. But if damage is all over the place, everything's going to look like a cause because there's going to be damps all over the place. And this just massive overspilling of damps, damage-associated molecular patterns, will over-elicit responses from the adaptive immune response to everything. So I believe that you need this rhythm, this specific rhythm of MDSCs to not get autoimmunity. If you don't have MDSCs at the beginning, you get autoimmunity because you have an, an early, you have an excessive adaptive immune response at the beginning that hasn't been precise, hasn't learned precision. If the MDSCs say high, then you get autoimmunity because you have too much damage and damage elicits autoimmune responses from the adaptive immune, immune system. So I don't know how autoimmune, you know, if you take a sample of autoimmune patients and you find their MDSCs are high, I don't know what happened before that that made the MDSCs, that made the autoimmune condition stay here. It's just that if you get rid of the MDSCs selectively, if you, you know, it's the only thing you do experimentally in animals, you will make the autoimmune condition worse. So the MDSCs are here to serve a purpose and that is to restrain the autoimmunity. Now you could say, well, what happens then if I try to support the immune system with vitamins A and D and, and I thereby get rid of the MDSCs? Am I going to get a flare up of autoimmune, of autoimmunity? I believe not. And I believe that on several, in several different ways. So first of all, I, I opened this by talking about back to 73, was 73, 71, whatever. Back in the first century, Pliny the Elder was talking about dolphins' liver preventing rheumatism. I believe that includes autoimmunity. We have similar uh, stories from cod liver oil with, with John Hughes Bennett in 1841. We also know from modern science that vitamins A and D synergistically suppress the development of TH17 cells, which are helper T cells that are biased towards promoting autoimmunity. And we have animal models where vitamins A and D prevent autoimmunity. So I think all of this says that vitamins A and D are key, uh, key to preventing autoimmunity. And what's interesting about the MDSCs is that although this hasn't been studied in the context of autoimmunity, another condition where MDSCs are actually protective is in sepsis, where you have a genuine immune response that is excessive and likely to kill someone. And so the animal, the uh, experimental evidence on MDSCs and sepsis says that if you take the activated form of vitamin A, retinoic acid, which, and I should also explain in cancer, what happens is the cancer, the tumor itself will promote 
local conversion of myeloid cells, local recruitment of myeloid cells and local conversion of them to MDSCs that become antigen-specific MDSCs that specifically suppress the immune response to the tumor. Okay, now, in cancer patients, treating them with retinoic acid, the activated form of vitamin A, will cause the differentiation of those MDSCs. In sepsis, it doesn't. You take blood from sepsis patients, dump retinoic acid on it, the MDSCs don't disappear. Why is that? If we go back to what I said before, vitamins A and D are not signals. They are the infrastructure of communication. So you're not converting anything with retinoic acid. You're providing the infrastructure of communication that allows the body to say, ah, I know whether I'm supposed to have MDSCs here right now or not. And now that I have the means to communicate that, now that that infrastructure of communication is not de depleted, I will get the correct amount of MDSCs rather than the wrong amount. So if the MDSCs are needed in autoimmunity, I believe you can put vitamins A and D in there and they're not going to cause the, you know, the robust clearance of the MDSCs in the way that they do in cancer patients because the body knows that the MDSCs are needed there. However, if you have this synergistic ablation of TH17 cells and you cool autoimmunity through other means, then perhaps you do see the MDSCs differentiate because the body will realize that the MDSCs don't need to be there. More research needs to be done on this. However, the evidence we have to date suggests vitamins A and D are strongly protective against autoimmunity. Exactly how that plays in with MDSCs, whether my hypothesis is laid out on this slide is correct or not needs more research. Now we have to realize that every immune event taxes vitamins A and D. Although emergency myelopoiesis might not be a term that's applied by scientists to every single one of these events, they all involve the recruitment of myeloid cells in some fashion and a rise in MDSCs. And that includes the tolerance of the newborn infant for the newly seeded gut microbiota. That includes the pregnant mother who needs to tolerate the unborn baby, right? So if you, if you look at it from the beginning of life, we start with the infant needing to, needing to tolerate the newly seeded gut microbiota. If you, you know, look at the chicken and egg scenario, the mother needed to tolerate the infant. Both involve a rise in MDSCs. Every single vaccination received, every single illness one catches, every single allergy one sneezes at, every single injury by which one is befallen, from which one must heal, the tolerance one needs for the fetus during pregnancy, you know, looking at it as, as life goes on, we have gut microbiota, then we have vaccinations, we have a variety of injuries and illnesses and allergies. And then, you know, when you're an adult, you get pregnant and you start the cycle over again. Every single cancer one is plagued by every single source of chronic inflammation. Any immune event is going to involve a temporary or perhaps in some conditions sustained rise in MDSTs, depending on the purpose. And all of these deplete vitamins A and D. One important thing that you need to think about here is that because vitamins A and D are used as signals, you can't have a signal stick around forever. To say, I want to do this one thing at this moment does not mean I want that process activated forever. So signals are cleared just as, you know, as soon as they're not needed anymore. And once you activate vitamin A, you can't unactivate it. You have to break it down. So each signaling event actually 
depletes vitamins A and D from the body. This is unlike something where, you know, if you use zinc for the immune system because it's a cofactor for enzymes that help immune cells burrow through tissues, you're not, you're not catabolizing a, an element, an atom of zinc. You're not making it disappear. Um, there are ways you can lose zinc from the body, but, but the immune use of zinc may sequester zinc for use in the immune process and take it away from other things, and that might increase your need for zinc. But once the immune event is over and the healing takes place, that zinc is going to get liberated and come back into the system. That's not true with vitamins A and D. They are straight up used up during all of these immune events. And so, you know, I believe that as a hypothesis, that this, all of this might explain most autoimmunity, right? So if, if you start out life and you're not well nourished with vitamins A and D and you go through all this list of things here, then that means at some point you're going to get set up for at some point one of those illnesses, if you're not repleting the A and D that you're using in each illness, at some point, maybe you started the first 15 illnesses over here, at some point you're going to start over here and you're going to wind up in a severe or fatal case. Um, you know, maybe you, you, you have it here or, or even here persisting and you wind up with, uh, with post-illness autoimmunity as a result of that. And then you need MDSTs to stay, ele stay elevated during the course of your autoimmunity to restrain the autoimmunity. And you're constantly using up vitamins A and D in that process. Although I should clarify, it's, it's the sustaining of the MDSCs does, is not what requires vitamins A and D. But you, you, know, you have to presume in, in a case of autoimmunity where you're constantly generating MDSCs, there's constant pressure to clear out the excess by further differentiating them. And so the, you're not going to have the same rapid depletion of A and D that you have in an illness where you're trying to clear out the, the uh, MDSCs right away, but you're going to have a slow leak of vitamins A and D that's rising your needs above normal. Um, and probably if you repleted them, you would cool the autoimmunity by, by converting, uh, by preventing the, the uh, differentiation of TH17 cells. Zinc, magnesium, vitamin E, vitamin K2, and fat soluble uh, and fat all support the fat soluble vitamins. So zinc, which is mainly obtained from oysters, red meat, and cheese, is used in the activation and transport of vitamin A. It's needed for activating vitamin A and D to bind to DNA and alter gene expression. It also has direct antiviral properties and is used by immune cells to infiltrate tissues in the form of being a cofactor for matrix metalloproteinases. And those same enzymes are also used during the healing process. So you are using zinc not only in the immune defense, but in the post-illness healing as well. Magnesium comes from unrefined plant foods primarily. Uh, you know, uh, These aren't a complete list of foods. They're just the most abundant sources. It's needed to make all proteins, including those made in response to vitamins A and D. If you don't have magnesium, you're not going to be able to express your genes. Uh, if you don't have the zinc, you're not, the receptors won't bind to DNA. You can't express the genes. Vitamin E, which the best sources of which are red palm oil and grass-fed butter, red palm oil being an excellent source, grass-fed butter being a good source, and vitamin K, K1 comes from leafy greens, K2 from egg yolks, cheese, goose liver, and dark chicken meat. These are all depleted by high doses of A and D. So if you're, if you're supplementing ma massive doses of vitamins A and D for the common cold, you're going to wind up with depletion of E and K, and they should be repleted. E is also needed directly as an antioxidant, which we're going to cover in, in an upcoming session. K2 protects against calcification in response to tissues that are damaged by pathogens 
or the immune response. So you want to have adequate K2, not so much for immunity itself, but for, pro for protecting your tissues from damage during the process of infection and immunity, um, which you know will will lower the amount of damage that you need to heal from and will also lower the amount of damage that could elicit an autoimmune response. Fat, especially saturated and monounsaturated fat, is needed to absorb the fat-soluble vitamins. So if you're mega-dosing and you're not taking it with a meal, you're absorbing far less of that dose. All right, that's vitamins A and D. Now let's look at the essential fatty acids. Specifically, we want to look at balancing the EPA and DHA of cod liver oil with the arachidonic acid of liver and egg yolks. All right, how much cod liver oil should we expect to use for the, its traditional use for immunity? So uh, Weston Price used three quarters of a teaspoon of high vitamin cod liver oil with three quarters of a teaspoon of butter oil concentrate in children with tooth decay. He wrote that the butter oil helped him reduce the dose of cod liver oil needed to one that did not have toxicity. And so he considered three quarters of a teaspoon to be the amount that was not toxic. He recommended storing cod liver oil in small bottles to minimize exposure to oxygen, which suggests that he was conscious of negative effects that were attributable to the oxidation of the polyunsaturated fats, the omega-3, EPA, and DHA that cod liver oil contains. He wrote in his letter to nieces and nephews that cod liver oil can be given in moderate doses without injury and do great advantage. Seldom, however, should a child be given more than a teaspoon a day for extended periods because of toxic effects that are known to develop. So presumably, he might have said the dose that, that you could get away with would be higher than a teaspoon in adults, but we don't have a record of that. We have a record of him using three quarters of a teaspoon as his standard dose paired to three quarters of a teaspoon of this butter oil concentrate. John Hughes Bennett in 1841 in his treatise on cod liver oil said that many peasants, as I told you at the beginning, would use a half pint to a pint and repeat 48 days until cured. Medical men would give two to four tablespoons to adults and one to three teaspoons to children. And that also included topical use. And he said, it is now well known that in many cases where the patient has taken it uninterruptedly for six or seven months, nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, or other derangement of the digestive functions have arisen. It has been observed that the digestion has become gradually more and more deranged and that even atrophy was thus occasioned. Now, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things here. So pay atten a special attention to digestive atrophy. And then in this list here, I want to draw your attention to the excessive evaporation from the skin. So he said, long-term excessive use of collaboral oil in some patients could lead to GI symptoms, including atrophy, it itchy skin eruptions, excessive evaporation from the skin, and excessive menstrual bleeding. And, you know, interestingly, as I'm seeing this, I'm thinking about the studies showing that COVID vaccines contribute to lengthen menstrual cycles. And one of my hypotheses is around hyperpermeability. And so I want, and that's interesting because what I'm about to tell you is the role of hyperpermeability in the excessive evaporation from the skin. But in any case, go back here a second. And what we see is, you know, to summarize this, Weston Price is saying three quarters of a teaspoon you can use indefinitely, but watch out with a teaspoon or more. What Bennett is saying is is roughly is you know pretty much totally in line with that, right? Because he's saying the peasants used massive doses, but they didn't do more than eight days. The medical men would use these small 
you know, two to four tablespoons or one to three teaspoons, smaller doses than, than the peasants, but then use them for months. But he says you can't use them in uninterruptedly for six or seven months, right? So he's saying these doses can be peasant doses, massive doses used by peasants can be used for eight days. Medical men level doses of tablespoons for adults or teaspoons for children can be used for six or seven months. And then Price is saying three quarters of a teaspoon you can use indefinitely, right? So that's, those are the boundaries of what, the, what was considered safe for the traditional use of cod liver oil over a short-term, medium-term, or long-term. Now, Bennett also said that a fat animal diet supports the action of, of the oil. Now, although we could invoke here the benefits of fat per se, for the absorption of the fat-soluble vitamins, I'm very interested in the possibility that he might have meant a diet full of egg yolks and liver and other organ meats, you know, which I think is what people would have thought of as a fatty animal diet at that point, rather than specifically the fat. Because this would be suggestive of a high arachidonic acid content, which is very high in egg yolks and liver. And why is that important? Well, arachidonic acid from liver and egg yolks or can be converted from linoleic acid in plant oils, although there's a lot of variation in the conversion process and it, that's less reliable. Arachidonic acid from liver or egg yolks is metabolized by COX enzymes, that's cyclooxygenase or COX. There's COX-1 and COX-2. COX-2 is more induced by inflammation. COX-1 is more generally expressed or con con um, constitutively expressed. Um, although there are exceptions to that, so COX-2 is, is uh, always generally expressed in the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. So for these purposes, COX-1 and COX-2 differentiation is not important, and I'm going to speak about COX generally. Arachidonic acid is metabolized by COX enzymes to prostaglandin E2. Prostaglandin E2 promotes food tolerance in the gut. It promotes the integrity of all barriers, including waterproofing the skin. It is the anti- permeability signal. And it's also responsible for the initiation of inflammation. On the other hand, DHA from the fish and fish liver oils is metabolized into byproducts that cooperate with prostaglandin E2 to create the resolution of inflammation. Now, that green arrow on the slide shows you how do we switch from the initiation of inflammation to the resolution of inflammation? Well, it's poorly understood how that happens, but it's not a biochemical process. It's a physiological process, meaning it doesn't happen at the level of this enzyme does that, that enzyme does the other thing. It happens at the level of things such as the, when the density of neutrophils reaches a peak in tissues, you start to get other cells that come in and you will have compounds that are produced as byproducts from these. I'm not showing you the whole pathway where one cell type produces one conversion and that molecule has to travel into the other cell next to it to do the next conversion. And if those two cells aren't side by side, you don't get the whole biochemical pathway, right? So this is the switch from one to the other is not biochemical. You can't say prostaglandin E2 initiates inflammation while a different prostaglandin resolves inflammation. Prostaglandin E2 initiates both inflammation and its resolution. And the reason it can do both is because the difference is not biochemical. The difference is physiological. It's dependent on the entire process and the way it evolves 
in the specific tissue where it is and the types of cells that are recruited there. And so this is not something that is amenable at all to being controlled by drugs the way people think it is because the process transcends biochemistry and is fundamentally physiological. It's at the level of the way different cells and tissues are sending things back and forth within the body. And so people are starting to try to develop drugs that can initiate the resolution of inflammation. I'm not saying no one will ever succeed in resolving that. I'm just saying the process of having inflammation start at the right time and resolve at the right time is not something that you can that you can uh, control in a pharmacological way. It's something that the body controls in its own wisdom using the raw materials that you give it, such as vitamins A and D and the essential fatty acids. Now, EPA and fish and, and fish liver oils interfere with the COX enzyme. They act as NSAIDs. Many herbs act as NSAIDs. These are over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs that inhibit COX enzymes. Inhibiting COX enzymes gives you lower peak inflammation, but it also gives you chronic low-level inflammation because you never fully resolve it. And the reason is that prostaglandin E2 initiates both the inflammatory process and its resolution and is made by COX. So if you have too much EPA, you're inhibiting COX and you're going to get chronic inflammation from it. But Worse than that, you're also inhibiting the integrity of all barriers, including the waterproofing of the skin, and you're also promoting food tolerance in the gut because prostaglandin E2, uh, excuse me, you're promoting food intolerances in the gut because prostaglandin E2 is one of the key uh, signals that promotes tolerance to food in the gut. So if we come back to what he's saying with GI symptoms, including atrophy, which sounds a lot like celiac disease, you can actually produce uh, villus atrophy that looks just like celiac disease, which is where the finger-like projections in the small intestine that are uh, there for surface area to improve the absorption of your food, they flatten. And you can make them flatten by giving an animal cox inhibitors and giving them like an egg white allergy or something like that. And the cox inhibitors will make it so the inflammation is not resolved in the response to the allergy that you induced, and you get villus atrophy as a result of eating that food. So, you know, this is in Bennett's list. Excessive evaporation of, of water from the skin is exactly what was the hallmark sign of essential fatty acid deficiency that was treatable with arachidonic acid and which was topically treated by prostaglandin E2. So these are prostaglandin E2 deficiency signs. These are arachidonic acid deficiency signs, and they're caused by the EPA overdosing in the fish liver oils. Itchy skin eruptions are probably caused by the same thing, because what happens in eczema? Well, first you lose water from the skin, the excessive evaporation dries out the skin, and then you use soap, and you wash away your damaged lipid barrier, and you have bacteria from your skin that just straight up are like, hey, I got a new home, and they dive into the eczematous lesion, and they create inflammation there, and they cause, and all that causes itchy skin eruptions, right? So this is probably, I don't know the exact mechanism by which hyperpermeability causes men excessive menstrual bleeding. I'd have to sit down and think about it because I'm just starting to think about it now, but these are probably all hyperpermeability symptoms driven by antagonism of prostaglandin E2 from the EPA and the fish oil, and the fish liver oil. All right, so how do you get around that? Well, 
With an optimal diet, EPA is converted to DHA. This is the same process that allows linoleic acid from plant oils to be converted into arachidonic acid and which allows alpha-linolenic acid from something like flax oil to be converted to EPA and DHA. But keep in mind that there are genetic variations between people that make these conversions poor. So none of these things can be fully relied on. I think you should get arachidonic acid and DHA in your diet. But you want to have a moderate dose of EPA, not an excessive one. And you want the diet to be rich in minerals, biotin, vitamin B6, low in total polyunsaturated oils and sugar, free of heated rancid oils, contain only modest amounts of EPA, and be rich in sources of the counterbalancing arachidonic acids such as egg yolks, liver, and other animal fats, but especially egg yolks and liver. And all of these things are going to allow the small amount of EPA to be less of a liability because it's well-balanced by arachidonic acid, because it's not providing excessive doses, and will allow the bulk of that EPA to be converted to DHA with you know, all the factors listed here are things that either help or hurt the conversion of EPA to DHA. That's the essential fatty acids. Now we're going to look at the redox factors, and we're going to start by looking at the oxidative burst, where we're especially focusing on vitamin C, glutathione, and energy metabolism. So the oxidative burst is... The production, this is used by many different immune cells to different, at different rates in different contexts. Neutrophils are really the, the prototypical cell that use the oxidative burst. They are sending reactive oxygen species at microbes to kill them. And it's not just microbes. It's anything that's, you know, any debris are also used in this process. The reactive oxygen species not only help break down things that don't belong, but also activate proteolytic enzymes inside the phagosome, which is the vesicle that the pathogen or, or debris that doesn't belong is taken into. So this is both kill the thing if it's alive and break it down and destroy it. And what's shown in red is all the antimicrobial stuff. So we have superoxide, we have nitric oxide, we have peroxynitrite. We have hydrogen peroxide and we have hypochlorous acid or bleach. You may notice two of these things from your bathroom cabinet, hydrogen peroxide and bleach, are quite often present in people's homes. There are roles for redox factors in making this happen. And then you'll also notice that if, if you are producing massive amounts of these oxidants, you're going to need defenses against them, right? These things are just generally toxic. The reason that if you pour hydrogen peroxide in your wound, and it's controversial whether you should do that now, but the point is, if you do, you're, the reason you kill the, the, uh, any potential infect, infectious microbes, but you don't kill yourself, is that you have the enzyme catalase, which will convert the hydrogen peroxide to water. And that's not shown on this slide. I'll show it to you in, in another slide. The point is, you can protect your tissues from hydrogen peroxide in a way that the microbes can't, but you still need nutrients to do that. But right now, we're talking about the role of redox factors in actually making this happen. So in order to make superoxide in the lower left, you, you need an enzyme called NADPH oxidase. That's a riboflavin-dependent enzyme that is dependent on energy that comes from NADPH which is a form of niacin or vitamin B3. That's how you get superoxide. You also need nitric oxide, and that's made by nitric oxide synthase. You need the amino acid arginine and oxygen 
to be metabolized to citrulline and nitric oxide. And the cofactor for nitric oxide synthase is BH4 or tetrahydrobiopterin. You do not use BH4 as a redox factor here in the sense that you don't have a cycling between BH4 and BH2, which is tetrahydra and dihydrobiopterin. And so you do not need vitamin C to re recycle BH2 to BH4. That happens in other enzymes. It does not happen here. However, BH4 is very redox sensitive. It can be oxidized very easily. And you have copious amounts of oxidants being produced in this process that can damage the BH4 and hurt nitric oxide synthesis. And so the reason that vitamin C is directly used in the oxidative burst is not as a donor of electrons to nitric oxide, but as a means of protecting the BH4 from all the oxidants that are being produced around it. And by preserving the BH4 cofactor, it allows the persistence of nitric oxide synthesis despite high levels of oxidants that can damage the BH4 and the enzyme. Vitamin C then needs, the, in that process, every time vitamin C does a protective act, it does need to be recycled. And there are various re enzymes responsible for this. Those are, depending on which enzyme, either NADPH, NADH, or glutathione. Glutathione, we'll talk more about soon. NADH and NADH are both forms of niacin or vitamin B3. That superoxide and nitric oxide can combine spontaneously to make peroxynitrite, which is even more antimicrobial. Or you can take superoxide and use superoxide dismutase, which is dependent on zinc and copper. And although this is also an antioxidant enzyme, by converting superoxide to hydrogen peroxide, which can then be converted to water in an antioxidant context, in this context, it's helping make hydrogen peroxide because it's more antimicrobial than superoxide. Hydrogen peroxide is also longer lasting. Superoxide doesn't last very long partly because it easily is converted to hydrogen peroxide. And so you can have a much greater effect on any process from hydrogen peroxide than from superoxide just because hydrogen peroxide sticks around longer. That hydrogen peroxide can then be used um, with chloride from salt and the enzyme myeloperoxidase, which depends on iron as a cofactor, to make hypochlorous acid or bleach, which is also even more effective in its antimicrobial context. So right here, we're seeing riboflavin, niacin, protein in the form of glutathione, vitamin C, zinc, copper, and iron is critical to the oxidative burst, and protein also in the form of arginine. The oxidative burst is critically dependent on energy metabolism. So when you recycle, um, when you use NADPH oxidase or glutathione reductase to either make superoxide in the case of NADPH oxidase or recycle vitamin C in, you know, if you're using glutathione or recycled vitamin C, you oxidize it, you then need to recycle it. So the recycling of, of NADPH um, or glutathione occurs in a riboflavin-dependent process. Sorry, uh, excuse me. I put multiple enzymes at once here, so I need to talk about them separately. So glutathione reductase will recycle glutathione, and it uses NADPH to do that. NADPH oxidase will make superoxide, and it also uses NADPH to do that. In both cases, you need to recycle the NADPH. In both cases, riboflavin is a cofactor of the enzyme helping you use the NADPH. The NADPH is mostly recycled in the pentose phosphate pathway, which is dependent on thiamine, calcium, and magnesium using energy from glucose. 
During the oxidative burst, that glucose front comes from glycogen breakdown in the immune cells. Glycogen breakdown is very dependent on vitamin B6. So here we are again seeing niacin and riboflavin. We are expanding thiamine, calcium, and magnesium, and vitamin B6 and glucose to new. We, we are expanding our view of the nutrients involved in the oxidative burst to those nutrients because of their role in providing the energy needed to recycle NADPH. Now, these redox factors are also used for antioxidant defense. If the immune cells are generating huge amounts of oxidants to kill pathogens, they need to defend themselves, and the surrounding tissues also need to defend themselves. One of the issues that happens if you have damage in the surrounding cells and in the immune cells is that oxidative damage to DNA will cause the irreversible loss of niacin, and that will deprive the oxidative burst of NADPH. So protecting tissues from damage is not just about preventing autoimmunity and, and making less of a burden to heal. It is also about allowing the oxidative burst to continue happening by minimizing the irreversible hydrolysis of NAD in, that is involved in, any, in DNA repair. We look at the redox factors involved in antioxidant defense. We have superoxide dismutase, which is dependent on manganese and the mitochondrion and is the so-called powerhouse of the cell, and the cytosol, which is the main uh, compartment of the cell, as well as outside the cell, the form of superoxide dismutase you use is dependent on copper and zinc rather than manganese. Hydrogen peroxide can then be converted to water either with the iron-dependent enzyme catalase, where iron is present as heme, the bad form of iron, or by glutathione peroxidase. Glutathione peroxidase is a selenium-dependent enzyme and it uses glutathione, which you derive from dietary protein. Glutathione peroxidase is using selenium and glutathione to neutralize any peroxide by converting it to a hydroxylated form. A hydroxyl group is an OH group. You can think of water as HOH rather than H2O. That's H on each side is H2O in the middle. HOH is a hydroxylated hydrogen ion. Uh, similarly, we'll see glutathione convert lipid peroxides to hydroxy fatty acids. It's doing the exact same thing. It's just a different form of the glutathione peroxidase enzyme that is membrane bound. If you have lipid peroxidation in a cellular membrane, whether it's the plasma membrane or the membranes of any of the internal organelles, you have an oxidant that turns to polyunsaturated fatty acid. This does not happen with monounsaturated fats or saturated fats. It only happens with PUFAs. If you oxidize the PUFA, you'll make a lipid radical. The lipid radical will bind to oxygen, become a lipid peroxyl radical. Notice that, well, I'll get to that in a second. The lipid peroxyl radical can then propagate in a domino effect or a chain reaction. It becomes the oxidant that oxidizes the next lipid, making that lipid shown right here, when the, when the lipid radical becomes the new oxidant, like over here, it oxidizes a new fresh lipid that makes a new lipid radical and itself becomes a lipid peroxide. So if this process is not interfered with, it becomes a chain reaction that will destroy all the PUFAs in the membrane, needing only one oxidant molecule to make it happen. Because once you initiate it, the propagation step just depends on each lipid radical becoming the new oxidant. 
just happens forever until the entire membrane is destroyed. These lipid peroxides can fragment into highly reactive compounds such as malondialdehyde or 4-hydroxynonanal that can cause damage to other cellular components. Notice this lipid peroxide is abbreviated L-O-O-H. That's taking this whole lipid and making it stand in as L and seeing it has an O-O-H attached. If you come back here, hydrogen peroxide, it's not drawn here, but it, H2O2 can be drawn as H-O-O-H, where that is a peroxyl hydrogen ion, which is converted to a hydroxylated hydrogen ion, which is what water is. In the lipid peroxide, if you convert that OOH to an OH, you're doing the exact same thing that you do when you convert hydrogen peroxide to water. You are just doing it on the end of a lipid or an L, making it convert to LOH, which we'll see momentarily. So the role of vitamin E in this process is to sacrifice itself to convert a lipid peroxyl radical to a lipid peroxide. And the significance of that is that even though you're doing the same thing that happens over here, you're not oxidizing a new lipid to make it happen. So you're not generating a new lipid radical that can then keep propagating the, the chain reaction. And what vitamin E does is instead of, you know, now it's oxidized, it has to be recycled. Instead of having the burden of that recycling happen within the membrane from another lipid, which would, which would make the, the chain reaction continue, it transfers the burden of that reducing process to vitamin C, which is present outside the membrane in the water portion of the, of the cytosol at the surface of the membrane. And once that's transferred onto vitamin C, vitamin C transfers that recycling power onto glutathione. Glutathione transfers it onto the system of energy metabolism, specifically the pentose phosphate pathway, as we talked about before. So vitamin E is serving to make one lipid peroxide to avert a chain reaction of many lipid peroxides and in doing transfer the burden of satisfying the voracious appetite of that unpaired electron that wants to oxidize anything in its path out of the membrane onto vitamin C, onto glutathione, onto the system of energy metabolism, ultimately to the system known as the pentose phosphate pathway. Now, you still have some lipid peroxides because even vitamin E is doing this by making lipid peroxide. And now you have to engage in damage control. You don't want the lipid peroxide to, to break down into MDA or 4-hydroxynonanal. So you want it to make it a safer form. And you do that by converting it into a hydroxy fatty acid. L-O-O-H becomes L-O-H. That's the same way that H-O-O-H or H2O2, hydrogen peroxide, became HOH or water, now you are just doing the same exact thing with a membrane-bound form of glutathione peroxidase using glutathione and selenium to get rid of the lipid, peroxyl, the lipid peroxide and make it a hydroxy fatty acid, which is the least dangerous among alternatives. It still appears as a mess to be cleaned up by the immune system. You do not want hydroxy fatty acids hanging around, but it's better than having lipid peroxides fragment into MDA and 4-hydroxynonanal, where they will diffuse throughout the cell and cause massive amounts of damage elsewhere. Antioxidant defense depends completely on energy metabolism. You have, you know, both ends of this are dependent on glutathione. You have glutathione critical in the water-soluble portion over here, with the, you know, with the exception of the role of heme, 
you are enormously dependent on glutathione with the exception of the enzyme catalase. And that glutathione recycling is dependent on the pentose phosphate pathway. That means glucose, thiamine, calcium, and magnesium, as I told you before. But the production of glutathione itself is ATP dependent. And all uses of ATP, all of them, require ATP as a magnesium chelate. Magnesium is needed for every instance of the use of ATP, including glutathione synthesis. ATP then requires sufficient calories. It requires that you not have energy metabolism disorders that are interfering with ATP production, such as diabetes or a thyroid disorder or an adrenal disorder. Energy production requires all the B, all the B vitamins, iron, copper, and sulfur. So you are now expanding what's needed to immunity to all nutrients involved in energy metabolism, as well as the prevention and proper treatment of any disorders of energy metabolism, including diabetes or anything in the thyroid and adrenal axis. And of course, any inborn errors of metabolism, most common of which is glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, which fundamentally compromises the pentose phosphate pathway, and which is a genetic condition that lowers your ability to do this. And you can't compensate for that with nutrients. I mean, you can, you can compensate by trying to provide the things that depend on the pentose phosphate pathway, but you can't normalize the pentose phosphate pathway completely if you have a genetic disorder in it. Other roles of glutathione include direct antiviral properties, maintaining the mucus fluidity in the lungs so you can cough up that pathogen rather than getting a dry cough where the mucus is stuck in the lungs. And in addition to this, whenever you have inflammation, you have all inflammatory signaling dependent on nitric oxide. And nitric oxide, when glutathione levels are high, generates vasodilation, which lowers your blood pressure. It might cause a headache or flushing as an adverse effect. But if glutathione levels are low, excessive nitric oxide barrier causes nitric oxide production causes barrier disruption, causing disrupted gas exchange in the lungs, fluid accumulation, and swelling at any site. Key, these are key hallmarks of, of uh, any form of pneumonia, whether it's from COVID or streptococcus pneumonia or something else. You have pulmonary edema, you have impaired gas exchange. And then, of course, you know, if you, ha you can have swelling in many other places. So if you have edema anywhere, this is driven by hyperpermeability. And then, you know, Serious consequences of an inflammatory disorder could include multi-system multi inflammatory syndrome where you have hyperpermeability everywhere. Glutathione is the central protector against all nitric oxide-induced hyperpermeability, which is a risk of any inflammation. Maintaining good glutathione status, healthy habits include eating at least one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Two to three glasses of raw milk per day will boost glutathione status CDC says raw milk is safe. We know what we think of CDC. However, starting a new milk habit may depress glutathione status for up to two weeks while someone adjusts to digesting the galactose. This is because galactose will be metabolized to galactitol, which sucks up NADPH. And that metabolism to galactitol appears to be gone after 15 days of consistent milk drinking. So don't start a new milk habit while you're ill. But if you regularly drink milk, you can use some extra raw milk as a way of boosting glutathione during an illness. You want to keep blood sugar stable. Specifically, you want to avoid hypoglycemia because it will completely compromise all the glucose-dependent processes in the oxidative burst we talked about before. But 
you also want to keep it below 140 because when your blood sugar goes on above 140, whether you are diabetic or whether you're healthy, above 140 is the threshold where you get spillover of glucose to galactitol, which is a sugar alcohol analogous to, I said that wrong. You get sugar alcohol production from glucose in the same way you get sugar alcohol production from galactose on a new milk drinking habit. But with glucose, it happens whenever your blood sugar goes above 140. doesn't matter whether you're diabetic or not. And that will suck up NADPH needed to, to recycle glutathione, engage in oxidative burst, et cetera. You want to prevent or treat diabetes or disorders of thyroid or, or adrenals because you need good ATP status. Diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and herbs and spices will stimulate glutathione production because these co contain polyphenolic toxins that are what I call well-behaved toxins that signal the need for glutathione. And carbohydrate will stimulate the production of glutathione through raising the insulin to glucagon ratio, which is a key regulator of glutathione production. As long as you do not have your carbohydrate rise, make your blood sugar rise above 140, where you will hurt glutathione recycling. And as long as you're not getting something like 40 to 60% of your diet as sugar, where you will cause an increase in de novo lipogenesis, which also detracts from NADPH status. Some key points about zinc. Zinc in the clinical trials is only effective for acute colds when it's used as a lozenge. Zinc acetate is best. Zinc gluconate is second best. Zinc acetate, the only one that is made in the formulation that is to the letter saying what the trials and the experimental evidence says will lead to the highest concentration of zinc ions to permeate the nose and throat is life extension enhanced zinc acetate lozenges. I've been recommending them for several years. I have podcasts done specifically about why. I won't go into the details here. However, zinc depletion rapidly and reliably causes sore throat and diarrhea, resulting from increased vulnerability to infection. So systemically, low zinc status will make you get an infection. But in the moment when you have an infection, you're trying to clear it, it takes a long time to correct whole body zinc depletion. Um, for example, people with smell and taste disorders in the 1980s, they found that they have 30, 30 to 40% whole body zinc depletion. To, to even partly correct that, they had to supplement them with 110 milligrams of zinc per year. Be careful that that high level of zinc can induce a copper deficiency, possibly an iron deficiency, and possibly the deficiencies of other positively charged minerals. My point is that you cannot, in an acute illness, rapidly and suddenly correct a 30 or 40% whole body depletion of zinc stores. So you need to, in a preventive context, make sure you have good zinc status. But in an acute context, Trials say you're only going to benefit if you use zinc lozenges, especially they should be zinc acetate. Zinc gluconate is a second tier option. In those cases, my, the general protocol would be, you know, make sure your diet or supplements are also giving you adequate copper and that you're not at risk of anemia while you're using high dose zinc in any form. But you want to suck on them, not chew them. They should last 30 minutes when you suck on them. You want to use them every two hours. But if your symptoms are intense, you can use them continuously until the symptoms start to abate. Um, and then use them until zinc, until resolution of symptoms. 300 milligrams of zinc per day will hurt immunity. And that's probably by inducing a copper deficiency. As early as 50 milligrams of, uh, per day of zinc will start increasing the need for copper. It may also increase the need for iron and manganese. 
getting enough zinc from food protects against these imbalances because if you eat oysters instead of taking zinc, you're already getting these other minerals. You might not get them in the perfect ratio, but you're getting some of them and you're getting, and that will protect you against any kind of imbalance that could be caused by high dose zinc supplementation. Zinc superfoods or oysters, red meat is a distant second and cheese is a moderately distant third after red meat. Key points about vitamin C. Vitamin C is only effective in trials for preventing colds when given to marathon runners, skiers, and soldiers conducting exercises in the subarctic at doses of 250, 500, 600, or 1,000 milligrams per day. Because these trials have used different doses and there's no evidence from them that 1,000 milligrams is better than 250 or that 500 is better than 250, this is probably indicating that people who have some reason to have increased needs for vitamin C get maximal benefit from the vitamin C when they supplement with 250 milligrams a day to prevent colds. There's not much success in, not consistent, robust success in reducing the incidence and severity of colds once you have them. However, there is suggested evidence that high-dose intravenous vitamin C in people with sepsis can lower the mortality by a, a long, by a lot, by around half. It's not statistically robust. Evidence is from the Citri Citrus Alley trial. Uh, part of the reason that it's not robust is because they didn't use this as their primary endpoint. That's kind of stupid because this is a disease with high mortality rate. They, that should have been the, the primary endpoint. So if you look at the Citrus Alley paper, they included the mortality um, comparisons with 50 other comparisons with blood markers. Really dumb design for their statistical approach. I think they should have led with that as the primary endpoint, and they would have shown pretty robust evidence that it cut the, the mortality and sepsis by half. However, if you look at that, all the high-dose vitamin C did was bring profoundly deficient vitamin C and sepsis into the normal range. So this provides no evidence whatsoever that in any other kind of illness where you don't have profoundly deficient vitamin C that's being consumed at such a high rate that you need high-dose intravenous vitamin C to get into the normal range, there's no evidence from that that you're going to that you're going to benefit someone by bringing vitamin C levels to 10 times the top of the normal range, which is what happens in someone who doesn't have sepsis and gets high-dose intravenous vitamin C. And in fact, out of the mess of data from COVID, uh, there were only two randomized controlled trials that are double-blind. And those look both look successful, but the Iranian one, there, one's from Iran and one's from China. The Iranian one looks even better than the Chinese one, and it used 500 milligrams per day of vitamin C supplemented in ICU patients, whereas the Chinese one used high-dose intravenous vitamin C. But those are the only double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials out of all the vitamin C RCT data for COVID. And it makes it look like you generally don't need more than 500 milligrams of, of uh, vitamin C per day, even in ICU patients. But the one definite exception to that is that if you have sepsis patients, and if you have someone in critical care, or if you're managing people in critical care, you best be measuring their vitamin C levels and correcting them in whatever way you need. If you just combine all this evidence, all, all it says is you want your vitamin C levels in the high end of the normal range. The normal way you do that is to eat a vitamin C-rich diet. And the special way you do that in an illness, if you have above, excuse me, not in an illness, the normal way you do that, if you have profound stresses that increase your needs for vitamin C, is to supplement with somewhere around 250 milligrams per day of vitamin C to bring your, your average intake with supplement and diet to around 
a little over 300 milligrams of vitamin C per day. And if you have a, a critical condition that's depleting vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C under medical supervision might be the way to correct it. That's not the typical case of an illness. That is the extreme case of a very profound critical case. So the most broad statement to make about vitamin C is that people under greater than normal stress may suffer from fewer colds if their year-round vitamin C intake is at 250, 250 milligrams per day more than average, which would bring it to about 350 milligrams per day. That's kind of on the higher end of what I think is a, a generally good amount to, to saturate immune cells in it in a preventive context for anyone. So 200 to 400 milligrams per, uh, uh, per day of vitamin C is a very robust high intake that will strongly protect the against infections. Some key points about selenium and excess selenium acts as a pro-oxidant. Brazil nuts are, a pop, are popular for selenium, but very 20-fold. If you don't know exactly how much selenium is in your Brazil nuts, it's best to keep them to an average of one or two per day. Orgy meats and seafood are a much more stable source of selenium-rich foods. And you want your selenium to be between 100 and 140 nanograms per milliliter. You really should check your blood levels if you're supplementing. Overall perspective on nutrients and immunity. An immune event taxes signaling molecules the most. Vitamins A and D in the form of retinoic acid and calcitriol and the essential fatty acids, particularly prostaglandin E2, but also the metabolites of DHA are the ones that you're going to need the most and that's because the signaling molecules get broken down as soon as the signal is not needed. So there's a rapid turnover and complete irreversible consumption of vitamins A and D and essential fatty acids during illness and healing. Molecular redox factors are the next most likely. And vitamin C, when it's not recycled fast enough, that degenerates into oxalate and urate, mostly oxalate. Glutathione, which is... I should take urate out of there, actually. So... I'm going to take urate out of there and oxalate is the key one to keep in mind. But anyway, glutathione, which is degraded to its constituent amino acids and vitamin E, which is broken down and lost in the urine. If you don't keep up with the recycling, you lose them. And so the system is not designed for them to be consumed in the way the signaling molecules are, but they are consumed because you never have perfectly matched recycling to the rate of, of breakdown, right? So you always have some leak out of this. So your main strategy is to support recycling, but you will probably need more of these nutrients in an illness, just not to the extent that you need more AD and essential fatty acids. So acutely, high doses of AD and EFAs are most important. Vitamin C, E, and glutathione are next most important. The other nutrients may be helpful acutely, but the focus should be on maintaining good status of everything year-round. As an example, zinc. You cannot fix a 30 to 40% decrement in whole body zinc stores once you get a cold. You need to work on your zinc status all the time. Once you get a cold, you now can benefit from zinc lozenges because they acutely saturate the mouth and throat and nose tissues with zinc ions that inhibit viral replication. But that's quite different from eating zinc, which is something you need to do year-round. So principles of a healthy diet, not focusing on immunity in particular, are diversify your protein among meat, fish, shellfish, and other invertebrates, eggs, and dairy. Make an effort to eat nose to tail by utilizing parts of the animal we've been neglecting in modern society. Liver and bone broth are excellent ways to start doing that. Diversify your carbohydrates among legumes, whole grains, starchy tubers, and fruits. 
If you don't tolerate some of those foods, don't eat them. But if you do tolerate them, diversify them. Eat a large volume, several cups a day of vegetables, diversifying them across colors with an emphasis on red, orange, yellow, and green. Always include dark green vegetables in the daily mix. Again, if you don't tolerate something, don't eat it. If you're carnivore because your autoimmune condition disappeared, I'm not telling you to eat vegetables. But barring some reason not to do these things, these are the best, most robust strategies to be getting everything you need. Include foods that aid in digestion at every meal, ginger, fermented vegetables, et cetera. Make sure to get about 1,000 milligrams of calcium a day. That may require special attention if not using dairy. There are some examples where calcium needs are probably higher among uh, white people of European Western European ancestry than they are among Asians and Africans. In Africa, there's a lot of genetic dis- diversity. So African-Americans might have lower calcium needs, but there, you know, in Africa, there are many people that have uh, ancestry in dairy herding cultures and so on. So it becomes very complex. But a thousand milligrams is a, is a good general. Most people are getting what they need if they're getting a thousand milligrams per day. To modify this for emphasis for immunity, you want at least one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, and and some from raw milk. You really should be getting this amount of protein anyway, but. It becomes more important for immunity to make sure you're hitting that. A lot of people in the bodybuilding world will double, some will triple this, uh, some for athletic performance as well. But this is the, the benchmark of what you definitely need for maintaining adequate glutathione synthesis. Four to eight ounces of liver per week, an average of at least one egg with the yolk per day, sunshine for vitamin D, cod liver oil, a half a teaspoon a day, or four to eight ounces of fatty fish per week, but not both because you don't want to overdose on the omega-3s. An average of an oyster a day, it's probably best if you eat one oyster a day, but no one's going to do that. So if you average it out across a week and you eat oysters once a week or twice a month and et cetera, you're not going to absorb the zinc as efficiently as if you get one oyster a day. But the point is, do something sustainable and getting an average of, a, of one oyster a day is a, great, is a great boost to your immunity. Fresh fruits and vegetables, providing two to 400 milligrams per day of vitamin C. You can add whatever herbs and spices you want into your diet. The polyphenols will help give you a glutathione boost. Red palm oil is an excellent source of vitamin E. Grass-fed butter is a good source of vitamin E. When you're sick, the old peasant practice of a half a pint to a pint of olive oil per day for four to eight days when ill probably provided somewhere between 100,000 to 200,000 IU of vitamin A and somewhere between 10,000 to 20,000 IU of vitamin D. If you look at Spiesman's trial, he was using a much higher amount of D and a much lower amount of vitamin A. So there's probably a lot of liberality in the exact ratio you use, but this could probably be optimized based on all the other data I've seen with more D and fewer omega-3s. So in an acute illness, I think 100,000 IU of vitamin A and D each on the first and second day, drop to 10,000 IU per day until resolution, and maintain 300 to 600 milligrams for the sum of EPA and DHA per day throughout the illness and healing. That, I think, is, is the best way to convert the peasant practice into something that is more optimized based on all the other data that I know of. In these cases, you ideally are getting these nutrients from food when you can and making up the rest with supplements. So you can mix and match liver, cod liver oil, supplements, et cetera, to whatever kind of mix you're comfortable with. Um, Retinal palmitate for vitamin A, vitamin D3. 
mix and match those together in a way that is as whole food based as you can, but meets those targets in a way you're comfortable with. If you have signs of existing vitamin A and D toxicity, obviously you can't use the same doses. Um, but generally speaking for an average person, a short-term one or two use of these doses is, is not going to lead to any toxicity, especially if they're taken together. And if you're uncomfortable with it, you know, you can convert this to getting 200,000 IU of each somewhere in the first week. So if you want to use 20 or 30,000 IU a day until you get to the 200,000 point and then drop it to 10,000 IU per day, fine. If you want to uh, take it in 50,000 increments in the morning, you realize nothing bad happened to you and do it again at night. So you hit 100,000 on the first day, do the same thing the second day, whatever. Um, point, point is that loading into the illness as early as possible is what will help facilitate the natural rise and fall of the NDSC so you get that natural rhythm. Of course, going into the illness with good status will make the loading dose less necessary, but you know, taking the wisdom from the old peasant practice, it seems like the loading dose, the vitamin D hammer, the vitamin A hammer is an excellent way to make sure that you're not running low as the needs for these things go through the roof at the onset of illness. Raw milk milk provides glutamylcysteine and bone broth provides glycine, which provides an extra boost to glutathione status that gets you around the first step of glutathione synthesis, which is the most regulated step with the glutamylcysteine. You get that from raw milk and and raw egg whites, no other foods. Egg whites have the downside of causing a biotin deficiency or hurting your digestion that raw milk doesn't have. Of course, raw milk, not everyone tolerates milk, but you know, so Raw egg whites are a possible diversifying uh, factor there. Just be aware of the trade-offs involved. Supplemental alternatives to this include whey protein for the glutamylcysteine and collagen or gelatin for the glycine. Keep in mind, some people, when they consume uh, collagen or gelatin, generate oxalate. I think the best way to protect against that is to, generally, I recommend not counting collagen or gelatin towards your total protein intake when you're thinking about your needs for protein. But when thinking about your needs for vitamin B6, you want to sum them together. So if you're getting 100 grams of protein and 45 grams of collagen, you have 145 grams of protein that are increasing your need for B6. You want three milligrams for every 100 grams of protein. And so you know, multiply three by 1.45, and that's your need for vitamin B6. Take a look at um, my Vitamins and Minerals 101 course or look at nutritiondata.com or chronometer and make sure that you're getting the B6 to match your protein in order to protect against generating oxalate, the gelatin, or collagen. And then put more emphasis on foods rich in vitamin C and E. You know, granted, you might need high-dose intravenous vitamin C in a critical care patient. Um, the Iranian COVID study shows that even 500 milligrams of oral vitamin C, even in critical care patients, is, is very beneficial. Um, and so even that is is unclear. The average person by far and away when they're sick is going to get the vitamin C benefit that they need by putting more emphasis on vitamin on vitamin C rich foods. I'm not going to deny anyone's experience if they claim that every time they take high dose liposomal vitamin C, their illness goes away. If it works for you, keep doing it. But my point is based on the science, I see no need to say anything other than put more emphasis on foods rich in vitamin C and E when ill. Nutrition is just one piece of the puzzle. Fresh air and sunshine, movement, rest and sleep, social connection, hope, gratitude, and other aspects of a positive outlook and spiritual orientation and 
and are, are, are all equally important as nutrition, each on their own in providing immunity. So I've gone in great detail into the nutrition or, uh, part of this equation. This is not meant to make it look more important than any of these others. If you enjoyed this, please follow me on Substack at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com. That's where you'll find all my written work that contains links to all the studies that I discuss. And that's also where you find my collection of ebooks in the menu. And this is also where you will find videos that are too controversial about nutrition science that might get me banned on YouTube. That I don't, I don't put them on YouTube. I put them on Substack. So go follow me on Substack. Thank you.